Welcome to the Serve Strong, Finish Strong podcast, the show for business owners in their 40s and 50s who deeply desire a business that serves its market strong and who also desire to finish strong personally. I'm your host, Scott Kokenauer. This episode is going to be a great one for you, and I'm honored that you're listening. So you hear words like Alzheimer's or dementia, and immediately you think the worst. Well, my guest has written a book called Seven Steps to Managing Your Aging Memories. Now it's in its second edition, and we'll talk about why there's a second edition. Let me tell you about my guest. His name is Dr. Andrew Budson. He's Chief of Cognitive Behavioral Neurology at the VA Boston Healthcare System, Associate Director of the Boston University Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, Professor of Neurology at Boston University, and a lecturer in neurology at Harvard Medical School. He's written nine books, in addition to the one that I referenced having to do with memory. The memory book that he's written explains how to distinguish changes in memory due to Alzheimer's versus normal aging. He also talks about what medications, diets, and exercise regimens can help, and best habits, strategies, and memory aids to keep your memory strong. Now, packed in this episode is a lot of that information. The main point of this episode is to give you agency, to give you perspective so that you're not at the mercy of a doctor just saying you've got dementia or your parents, your mother or your father has dementia. This will give you a little bit deeper understanding of what's going on and also very actionable steps that you can take as it relates to your exercise, your diet, your extracurricular activities like working crossword puzzles, and the importance of sleep. Now, we all know that good sleep and diet and exercise, historically, that's been good for us. That We know that that's good. My guest, Andrew, goes into why it is important to your memory. Enough of me talking about it. Let's get into the conversation with Dr. Butson. Andrew, it is an honor and a privilege to have you on the show today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So you've written a book, and that book is called Seven Steps to Managing Your Aging Memory. I will refrain myself from a bunch of memory jokes. How's that? But let's talk about the book. First of all, why did you and your co-author write the book in the first place? What was the spark that caused that? As a memory doctor, I typically get referrals from primary care doctors or often people coming to me themselves because they're concerned about their memory. And unfortunately, a lot of people come to me somewhat late in the whole process. Mm -hmm. And when I talk with them about it, they say, well, I went to my primary care doctor three years ago. And they said, oh, Mrs. Jones, everybody your age has memory problems. Don't worry about it. And I realized that I really needed to write a book that would help to empower individuals and sometimes their families with the knowledge that they needed so that they would know on their own whether their memory is normal, whether it's not, and of course, what to do about it. 
Yeah. And we were talking just before we hit record about how, you know, having read the book, I've come away from reading the book with a greater sense of agency, you know, just aware you've laid out the context of memory so well that, you know, it's kind of a reference point. It's a textbook now for me to, there's anything. In fact, I'm thinking as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, you know, I forget my keys. I've got literally, I've got a wallet and inside my wallet is a tile. It's called tile and it's attached to my phone so that if I walk away without my wallet, I'll get notified. So I'm wondering sometimes, you know, what's going on with my memory? I'll be 59 in a month or so and a couple months. And so just to say, the book is very good at giving someone context and understanding what's going on, which gives us agency. And we can't produce and move forward much without agency. Yeah, so agree with you. I think that, you know, when we feel that we have the knowledge so that we understand, you know, is this memory like, you know, having trouble finding the keys or walking away without the wallet? Like, is this a normal thing that can just happen? Or is this the start of Alzheimer's or something like it? And that's exactly what we tried to do is to help people understand the answer. Okay. Well, that's great. And it's a second edition now. So why give us a little bit as to why you wrote the second edition? Yeah. Well, we have learned in the past six years since the first edition came out a lot more about memory and Alzheimer's and the things that impact them. And there's also new treatments out there for early stage Alzheimer's that were just being tested when the first book was written. So we know a lot more about the effects of alcohol. And the short answer is one drink a day isn't bad, but it's not really good either, which we thought six years ago. We know a lot more about sleep and how critically important sleep is both for helping to preserve our memories and also to help reduce our risk of Alzheimer's disease. And then there's these new medications that can actually slow down the ticking clock of Alzheimer's, and they just weren't available six years ago. Well, we'll get into some of those in a moment here. So let's dive into memory. What are the changes in memory that are normal with healthy aging? And how are those changes different from what most people understand as Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. So there's basically three changes that occur in normal aging to our memory. And the first is that sometimes we, and by the way, I'm 57. So I'm just okay. a few years younger than you. I think I'm entitled to say we, so okay. we will sometimes need information repeated a couple of times in order to get it into our memory store. And when we're trying to retrieve information, it may take a little bit longer to get the information out. We may have to pause for a minute or two. And then we also may need a hint or a cue to remember what the right answer is. You know, somebody primes us or we prime ourselves and we're like, oh, that's right. I remember the name of that movie or restaurant or whatever it is. But in normal aging, as long as the memory got into our memory store, we should be able to retrieve it. 
even if it takes a bit of time or a hint or a cue. And I wanna contrast those three things that happen in normal memory with what happens in Alzheimer's disease. So in Alzheimer's, the problem is that even when information is repeated, even if we wait a bit of time or are given a hint or a cue, we cannot retrieve the information. And that's because in Alzheimer's, a part of the brain called the hippocampus is damaged. And the hippocampus is the part of the brain that's storing those new memories. And when that is damaged in Alzheimer's, information is rapidly forgotten. And that is never normal. There's one thing in the book that jumped out at me, and it's from normal memory loss to Alzheimer's. It's when your lack of memory impairs normal living. Absolutely. And that's another good way to know that the memory loss has gone beyond normal aging is when it interferes with your day-to-day -day function. I, I want to bring in another book that I've read that many, you know, I've promoted it many times with people and it's by Arthur Brooks um, and called From Strength to Strength. I have read that book. Okay. So in there, he talks about fluid intelligence or uh, versus crystallized intelligence. Yes. And the fact that sometimes when we get older, it takes us a little longer to remember somebody's name, not so much for memory, but because we've stored such a wealth of wisdom and knowledge and the quote unquote little librarian is getting older and takes a little longer to get to the spot in the library that will pull that out. Is it, how do you reconcile that with the book that, or the work that you've done? Yeah, it actually, it fits quite well. So the fluid intelligence, which is one of the things that does go downhill a bit with mm -hmm. age, is actually what our frontal lobe function is doing. And if you want to think of the frontal lobe function as a librarian, I think that's a perfectly good analogy. So because our fluid intelligence hasn't stayed quite as strong as when we were younger, you can think of the librarian becoming a little bit hard of hearing, and so they need information repeated. You can think of them moving a little bit slower, so they need more time to retrieve it. And you can think of their eyesight not being quite as good, so they have to squint when they're trying to retrieve that information and somebody has to cue them. The crystallized intelligence, on the other hand, is our store of knowledge, including vocabulary, but also facts and sort of experiences that we've had, you know, forever. And the crystallized intelligence doesn't deteriorate and in fact goes up somewhat over time as our accumulation of knowledge. So I actually think it, it fits perfectly with that dichotomy. I want to shift just a little bit to a different gear and talk a little bit about the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia. Sure. A lot of listeners will, we're in this stage where our parents are getting older and we get a diagnosis or something that says your mother has onset dementia. Help us understand a little bit the difference. Absolutely. So dementia is a general term that simply means thinking and memory has deteriorated to the point that it interferes with day-to-day -day function. And as a general term, I sort of think about the word dementia like I think about another general term like a headache. 
So a headache can be from a lot of different things. You could have a muscle tension headache or a migraine headache, neither of which are very serious. But you could also have a headache from a stroke or a brain tumor, which obviously are serious. Mm -hmm. And with dementia, it's the same way. You can actually have dementia from something as treatable as a vitamin deficiency or a thyroid disorder. But you can also develop dementia from a variety of different brain diseases, including Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, which is dementia due to strokes, frontotemporal dementia that often affects uh, behavior, Parkinson's disease dementia, which is similar to dementia with Lewy bodies, and there's many other types as well. So dementia is the general category, and Alzheimer's is one type or one cause of dementia. Okay. Okay. And that helps me understand. So when I say I have a headache, that's kind of the front title to something else that is behind it. Exactly. And one of the things, one of the other reasons we wrote the book is, you know, sometimes I hear people come in and they say, well, my doctor diagnosed me with dementia. And I say, well, what type of dementia did they diagnose you with? What did the doctor say was the cause of the dementia? And they said, oh, you know, they just said it was dementia. And I find that absolutely infuriating. Yeah. I mean, imagine if you went to the doctor and you said, you know, doctor, my head is killing me. It, it's aching. You know, can you help me understand what's going on? And the doctor says, oh, you have a headache. That's yeah. your problem. Like, you have what we call, what us doctors call a headache. Yeah. It's like, would you be satisfied with that? It's like, Absolutely no, you wouldn't not. be satisfied with that. No. And anybody out there, you should not be satisfied if you or your loved one is told that they have dementia and there's nothing further. That's the end of the story. Well, I think what makes it infuriating, and I agree with you, is the fact that it sets you down the path of the worst case scenario. Oh, dementia. I've got dementia. My mother has dementia. It's the end of the end, you know, when it could just be that it's related to something very simple. Exactly. It could be something simple. And even if it's the most common cause of dementia late in life, which is Alzheimer's, there are so many good treatments available now. It's not the end of the story. Okay. Let's talk about treatments. And then we're also going to talk about what we can do in everyday normal life to slow down the loss of fluid intelligence. So treatments, tell us about like the FDA has approved just this year, some things that can be utilized. What are those? Yeah, it's super exciting. So Alzheimer's disease occurs when this collection of this protein in the brain called amyloid clusters and clumps together and forms these plaques. And once the plaques form, it starts to then cause tangles to form inside the cells. And these tangles end up killing the cells. So what these brand new treatments are that were just FDA approved in 2023 can do is they can actually remove the amyloid plaques from the brain. So it's really a game changer in terms of what this means. So, you know, unfortunately it can't remove all the problems in Alzheimer's. It doesn't remove the tangles, which are still there and causing mischief, but the, the plaques 
can be completely removed. And what the studies have shown is this can slow down the decline that occurs in Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And so people who just had mild memory problems and it didn't yet interfere with their daily life, they were able to continue being mild and not have it interfere with their daily life for months and months. And as you can imagine, something that's actually changing the slope of the decline, how rapidly the decline occurs, the earlier you start with these medications, the better they work. And there's actually studies going on right now to see if people who don't have any memory problems at all, but just have a family history of Alzheimer's disease, what happens if we intervene really early? Can we actually essentially prevent Alzheimer's disease from developing? And those studies are going on uh, right now. And if your listeners are interested, they can sign up for a study like that. Okay. And we'll get to where someone can reach out to you and find out that information. So Absolutely. Okay. So if someone cannot take one of the new medications, because for whatever reason, are there other medications that are helpful? Absolutely. And, and I should say one of the reasons that people couldn't take these medications is they do have side effects like all medications. <laughs> and sometimes people can get some brain swelling. Now, the brain swelling is actually related to how these amyloid plaques are cleared from the brain. They're cleared by the body's immune system. So what the drug is, it's actually an antibody, which is normally something your body makes to fight against infections. But these antibodies are engineered in a, a laboratory to stick to the amyloid plaques. And then the body's immune system comes in, does its thing, and destroys the plaques. Well, sometimes that process is actually too vigorous and we get some swelling in the brain. So that's one thing we have to watch out for. And to look for that type of side effect, we need to do MRI scans. And not everybody can have an MRI scan. Sometimes there's pacemakers that are not compatible with MRI scans. People may not be able to get into an MRI scan because it's too small a space and they're claustrophobic. Yeah. The other side effect that can occur are these little tiny bleeds. And if one is on blood thinners, tiny bleed can turn into a big bleed. Right. So in general, if someone is on blood thinners, we don't want to give the medication. Right. But there are other medicines that people can take. And these are medications that have been around for more than, than two decades. The first one was approved in 1997. And the name of that medication is Dinepazil, brand name is Aricept. And these are medications that help to raise up the levels of a chemical in the brain called acetylcholine that's very important for thinking and memory. And what these medications do is instead of slowing down the ticking clock of Alzheimer's, like the type that removes the amyloid plaques, these medications can turn the clock back and can actually make people's memory better 
In fact, wow. the studies show it can make your memory the way it was six months ago, or maybe even a full year ago. So, you know, it's wow. not a miracle drug. You can't make your no. memory like it was 10 years ago, but it can make it like it was six or 12 months ago. So that's another good medication that people can. So let's talk about what we can do today, right now, as soon as we get off the episode, things we can do. Now you mentioned sleep earlier. Is it important to memory? And if so, why? Yeah. So it turns out that the process from having a short-term temporary memory to a long-term permanent memory, that process occurs when we sleep. And there's actually two stages of sleep that are absolutely critical for that process to take place. The first is in non-REM uh, sleep, but it's sort of non-REM stage two, which is sort of a light sleep. And although many people think about dreams occurring during REM sleep, turns out dreams occur during this non-REM sleep stage two as well. And it's during this stage of sleep that we actually replay in our brains what happened over the last day, couple of days. It's replayed in our memory. And as it's replayed, it helps the brain to permanently keep that memory, at least if it's important. That's the other right. thing that sleep does. It's the time when we figure out which are the important memories to keep and which are the trivial memories like what clothing we wore or what we had for breakfast that get forgotten. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens mm -hmm. is during REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, and we have all those crazy dreams, that is actually us being aware of when our memories are being connected to all of our other knowledge. And that is the time that we might get some novel insights that percolate up to consciousness, perhaps in the middle of the night or the next morning, because we've made some novel connections. So sleep is critical for us to retain any type of information that we had learned earlier in the day. So if we don't get enough sleep, then we're harming our ability to hold on to the memories that we learned. Now, the other reason that sleep is critically important is we all make a little bit of this amyloid I was talking about before during the day. It turns out amyloid has a normal function. It actually helps our brain to fight off infections. But we normally flush away the amyloid that we make during the day at night. We, we get rid of it. So we are in a balance. But if we don't get enough sleep, there's not enough time to flush away all of the amyloid and it starts to accumulate. So if we sleep less than five hours a night, it can actually impair our ability to flush away all the amyloid and people develop Alzheimer's at a younger age. You're making me think about a connection here. If I, the last 15 minutes of the day before my head hits the pillow, I spend some dedicated time to reflecting on the events of the day, which I promote. I talk about that all the time. I'd say like bookends, you want to reflect on the day at the beginning that you're going to have, and then you want to reflect on the events of the day after. Does that in some way enhance the productivity 
of our brain's activity during sleep. Absolutely. There's actually very good evidence for exactly what you're saying. And anyone who is taking a course, trying to learn new knowledge, you know, adult education course or a college course, whatever it is, you will absolutely retain that knowledge better. And the other thing is it can also help you to go to the next stage of whatever you're looking for. And what I mean by that, so for example, you know, I'm a writer and have written this book and a couple others. And what I do is I reread whatever I wrote during the day, right before I go to bed. And I'm absolutely convinced that the reason it's so easy for me to write the next morning, the next, you know, a couple pages of my book is because I've reviewed what I did the night before. So I 100% agree with exactly what you said to Mm -hmm. review the day's events or whatever it is you want your brain to work on while you're sleeping before you go to sleep. So exercise, let's jump from sleeping to what do we do during the day? We all know how it can help your heart, you know, and there's a lot of research on walking and how important that is, but can it really help your brain? It really can. It really can. And the most sort of exciting thing about exercise is aerobic exercise can actually release growth factors in the brain that can help one to grow new brain cells. Now, that may be surprising to some of your listeners, because I will tell you, when I went to medical school and I graduated in in 1993, you know, I was told that adults do not grow new brain cells, Mm -hmm. but we now know that human beings do grow new brain cells throughout their life. And there's actually more new brain cells grown in the hippocampus, which we talked about is critical for memory. That's what gets attacked in Alzheimer's. So we can actually grow that structure, grow the hippocampus larger. And that has been shown to directly correlate with how much aerobic exercise we do. So in other words, the amount of aerobic exercise we do is directly correlated with the size of our hippocampus, which is also directly correlated with our memory function. So exercise is really amazing in what it can do. And the amount that we can grow our hippocampus is so large that you can actually see the effects in six months, and they're even bigger at one year. And the study that I'm talking about right now was actually looking at adults aged 55 to 80. So exactly our target uh, audience here. Are you referring to the brain, the new research showing that the brain can grow cells? Is that termed for the plasticity of the brain? I've heard of that. It's one part of the plasticity of the brain. The two parts of the plasticity are the growing of new brain cells and growing of new connections between existing okay. brain cells. Those nice. are the sort of two different components of the brain's plasticity. That was good news when I read that. You know, it's not all decline. And it's interesting, just as a side note, the new research about the plasticity and the fact that we can grow our brain cells coupled with Arthur Brooks' book, yeah. the Strengths to Strength, there's another curve. When we're in, as I was growing up, it was always over the hill. When you hit 40, you were <laughs> over the hill as if, as if there's one hill 
Right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's all downhill from there. Uh, what we're finding is it's not all downhill from there. And that's what is exciting for the most part of what I get to do with my clients is let's build a strategic plan to make the most of this second hill, this fantastic life that we have yet to live. That's a side note. So two more things. I want to talk about diet and also want to talk about crossword puzzles. So usually the diet and exercise, those are like twins. You're always talking about diet and exercise, diet and exercise. We've talked about the exercise. Is there such a diet that will help with memory? Yeah, there there actually is. I do want to say that the exercise effects are the strongest, but the diet effects are still important. And what's been shown in now in a couple thousand studies is that the Mediterranean menu of foods is really the healthy menu to eat. Mm -hmm. So that includes olive oil, avocados, fish, fruits and vegetables, nuts and beans, and whole grains. And then from a sister diet, I'm pleased to say we can pull in poultry, chicken, turkey, things like that as well, as those are all the things that are good to eat. Now, of course, all your listeners are wondering, well, what are the things that are not good to eat? (laughs) And I hate to tell you, it's almost everything else. Not to mention the things that you have listed, like fruits and vegetables, there are processed, there are packaged, and you want to stay away as much as you can from the processed or the packaged where, because they're laced with things that are designed to help them stay longer on the shelf. Uh, that That is so true that basically the more processing that happens with the food, essentially the less healthy it is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the best thing to do is to try to have you know, fruits and vegetables and grains that are unprocessed. So for example, a whole wheat flour, 100% whole wheat flour, you know, used in moderation is absolutely good. It's part of a, you know, a healthy uh, diet, but to have white flour or white bread or white rice that basically has all the fiber and everything stripped off, that's not good for us because that is essentially pure carbohydrate. It's very quickly broken down by our body into like pure sugar. We get a big sugar spike, which causes a big insulin spike, and that's not good for the brain. But as long as it's whole grains in moderation and food that's unprocessed, right, that's what's good. Okay. Okay. Diet, exercise, sleep. One more thing. My wife is a crossword puzzler. First of all, are they good? And if they, I'm assuming that they are, what is it about cross? What goes on in the brain when you're doing a crossword puzzle? Yeah, it's a very good question. And it turns out crossword puzzles are good. And the reason we know that crossword puzzles are good is because a company that develops computerized brain training games basically used, you know, had people either play their computer brain games or do crossword puzzles. And what they found is that people's thinking and memory did better in the group that played crossword puzzles, and they ended up doing worse in the group that did the computerized brain training game. So it was exactly the opposite of what the company thought. And it was a very well done study. And this is how we know 
that crossword puzzles are helpful. And it's also how we know that computerized brain training games are not generally helpful. And the reason that I speculate that crossword puzzles are so helpful is they, number one, activate all sorts of different areas of the brain depending upon the content knowledge that one needs. So there are some activities that we do that it basically just makes a tiny area of the brain work very hard, but the rest of the brain can essentially go to sleep. But when you do a crossword puzzle, because the knowledge it tests is generally vast, and because crossword puzzles by their very nature force you to make new connections and to think about words and people and items in, in ways you didn't think about before, it actually makes you use that sort of neuroplasticity in a way that you might not have if you didn't engage in the crossword puzzle. So I do think that those are reasons that crossword puzzles can be helpful. And the other thing that I feel is important to say, I don't know if crossword puzzles in your house are like they are in our house, but in our house, you know, one person may be primarily doing it, but you know, people know, like, you know, I know a lot of science and science fiction. So if a question comes up like that, it's like, hey, Andrew, you know, what's a five letter word for immunology or something like that? You know, it becomes a social activity as well, which has also been shown to be very important. Well, I'll tell you, my wife is working on the Wall Street Journal and she's getting better at it. I have these easy crosswords that I do. <laughs> They're mindless. And I would probably do well to work on a little bit more difficult crossword puzzles. So here's the scenario. I wake up in the morning. I reflect on the day ahead. I eat a Mediterranean diet during the day. I exercise aerobically during the day. I do a crossword puzzle toward the evening. And then I reflect on the day. And I go to sleep at a regular time. And I sleep longer than five hours, preferably I would guess what, seven, eight mm -hmm. hours, maybe nine yep. if you can, and then rinse and repeat every day. Just keep working. Now there's rest, I'm sure. And we don't have time in the podcast to talk about all the other elements, but I would encourage everyone, you've got to get the book that Andrew has written. It's called seven steps to managing your aging memory. We will put a link to that, an affiliate link to that book in the show notes. This has been fascinating. This is, like we said at the beginning, reading this book and then now hearing you talk, I feel like I have a better context for this whole scary thing called dementia, this scary thing called Alzheimer's. And when we get the call that, hey, your mother or your father has been diagnosed with dementia, we know that there are follow-up questions now that we can get. And Absolutely. That gives us agency. And that's a big part of moving into the fourth quarter ourselves. I appreciate your, the conversation. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And before I let you go, where can we find you besides the book? Absolutely. You can find me on my website, uh, www.andrewbudsonmd.com. Okay. Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Oh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Scott. This has been another episode of the Serve Strong, Finish Strong podcast. I've got three steps for you. 
Number one, subscribe to the show. That way you'll be notified of upcoming episodes. Number two, share the show with a colleague. This is dedicated to mature business owners who want a great company and who want to have a fantastic fourth quarter, the final quarter of life and have in all its fullness. Number three, visit servingstrong.com slash POD. That's pod, which is short for podcast. Servingstrong.com slash pod. For more details on what you can do with the episodes, it's a place for you to dive just a little deeper on the topics that matter most to you. I want to thank you for listening. And until next time, here's to your business serving strong and here's to you finishing strong. This has been another episode of the Serve Strong, Finish Strong podcast. I take your time very seriously. Therefore, my pledge is to continue bringing you information and insight you need to be successful in your adventure as you finish strong. Be sure to check the show notes for the information related in this episode. Subscribe to be notified when new shows drop and leave a review if you're so inclined. I'll talk to you next time.